Welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Jen Williams. I'm here with our brand new official co-host, Alex Ward, and our special guest today, Dr. Alina Polyakova. Uh, Alina, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for having me on Vox. I'm a fellow at Brookings and look forward to talking about NATO and Russia with you. Yeah, so she's going to help us talk through President Trump's meeting at NATO and his upcoming meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. So first, NATO. Trump flew to Belgium this week, and he met with the other 28 members of the NATO military alliance. In the past, Trump has railed against NATO. He's called it obsolete. He's complained that the U.S. spends way more money on defense than the other countries in the alliance do. And he's basically done his best to stir things up at this meeting, too. So you could be forgiven for thinking that Trump's been terrible for NATO overall. But if you actually look past all the noise, NATO's doing pretty well under his presidency. So today on Worldly, has Trump been good for NATO? First, to set the scene, Alex, can you give me like a really quick primer just on NATO? Sure. Uh, it's currently an alliance of 29 countries. It was started four years after World War II in 1949. It was effectively created to, one, ensure peace on the European continent, but also to basically keep the Soviet Union from further attacking. It has grown over time, and it is now sort of the premier political military alliance that the United States relies on to, one, have security in Europe, but also project power, if you want to put it that way, throughout the world. Right. And it's a collective defense agreement, right? Explain what that means a little bit. Yeah. So the, the heart of the alliance is something called Article 5. It's part of the, the founding charter. What it effectively means is an attack on one ally is an attack on all. Uh, so if, let's say, Russia were to attack Estonia, then the U.S. would consider that an attack on America and we would go defend Estonia. It's only been enacted one time, September 12, 2001. You can probably think why. So the only time it's been used is to help the United States. The United States has not invoked it to help a European country yet. Basically, NATO has been chugging along pretty well for decades. And now, all of a sudden, Trump is basically stirring the pot, right? So let's go through some of Trump's fieriest NATO moments here. Yeah, so let's uh, listen to what Trump said at a rally in Montana just last week. We have $151 billion in trade deficits with the EU. And on top of that, they kill us with NATO. They kill us. What he's talking about there in terms of kill us, right? Trump's big kind of complaint is about defense spending and that the U.S. spends more for defense than the European countries. Um, Alina, can you talk us through a little bit about what that actually means? He's kind of talked about it as if, like, we all pay dues to NATO and they're not paying their their fair share. But that's that's not actually correct, right? Well, that's right. So, uh, first of all, our European allies are not killing us with NATO. Um, as Alex was saying, NATO is a collective military alliance that has primarily so far benefited the United States, not just after 9-11, uh, but also because the U.S. cares about the security of Europe. And this transatlantic relationship has been the bedrock of peace in the world, you could say, uh, since World War II. So what happens in NATO is each country has to commit to spend 2% on their own defense. It doesn't mean that this is exactly what each country is then contributing to NATO. That's decided proportionally. And the U.S. is the largest economy. And so as a result, the U.S. ends up paying significantly more into the NATO budget. And all the NATO member states have agreed to reach that 2% mark by 2024. So it's not like the U.S. is owed dues. Right. Because proportionally, this is the agreement that all the member states have uh, signed up to. Right. It's 2% of GDP. And obviously, like you said, our economy is just a lot 
bigger uh, than a lot of, you know, other countries who are involved. And, you know, the idea behind this, right, is to make sure that other European countries are also building up their own defensive capabilities so that, you know, in the event of some sort of invasion or attack, it wouldn't just be the U.S. who's this one strong military power and no one else has any way to defend themselves. It's also, like, deterrent. If everybody has a really tough military, ideally, hopefully, somebody wouldn't attack knowing that there's this big alliance. So Trump has, like we heard, you know, complained, railed since the campaign trail and even just last week about NATO, about spending— and everyone was really nervous about what was going to happen at the actual summit. This only happens every two years. It's where they all come together to kind of talk through, you know, planning and defense and spending and all kinds of stuff. And so what happened, Alex? So it, it the worry was that Trump would blow up the summit, and he basically proved that true within the first couple minutes during a breakfast with the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, who is Secretary General, by the way, is the leader of NATO, the political leader of NATO went ahead and just started berating NATO allies for not spending enough on defense and especially focusing on Germany for what he said, quote, being captive by Russia. What Trump was referring to was that Germany was importing too much energy from Russia and therefore Russia would have some sort of undue influence over the top country. On top of that, Trump throughout the two days of the meeting was late to certain meetings, uh, in fact, showed up late to a meeting on Russian aggression. Like 30 minutes late, Like right? 30 minutes late for a like, meeting on Russian aggression. At your convenience, your, at your, your conven highness. <laughs> right, and U.S. is the most important partner. So for the U.S. to not show up to that meeting was quite important. Constantly asking allies to spend more, that's all he would spend his time doing. Uh, on top of that, the 2% that Lena was just talking about, Trump said, no, no, that's not enough. we got to go to 4%. Which the U.S. doesn't even spend. Correct, right. yeah. We're right, at, we don't even do that. No, we're at like 35 3.6%. But what's bizarre about this is, you know, Trump goes in, not pulling any punches, immediately out the gate, is sitting across from the secretary general and uh, haranguing him and haranguing Germany. Um, and then all of a sudden, we have a surprise press conference on the last day of the summit uh, where Trump goes a complete 180 and says, I strongly believe in NATO I reaffirm NATO's uh, commitments, the greatest alliance, I'm paraphrasing, something like this. And everybody's just shocked, is, is the <laughs> sense. So what happened, right? How did he go from very angry, confrontational, to suddenly signing the, the joint NATO uh, communique that uh, reaffirms that NATO will not recognize Crimea, that condemns Russia for its annexation and continued occupation of Crimea, that affirms the NATO allies will continue to abide by Article 5. So all of these good things that Alex is talking about. And so then everybody's just flabbergasted at the end. And I think the reality is the only way I can understand this is that it looks a lot like a really abusive relationship <laughs> <laughs> where first you're going to beat somebody around, you tell them it's over, you harangue them, you criticize them. And then once they're at their lowest point, you say, oh, never mind, I still love you. And let's just all be friends again. Definitely seems healthy. It seems like a good way to have a relationship with your closest allies. So obviously the optics here, right? From the surface, it looks like NATO is in really bad shape. Is this actually a problem, th these kind of surface and, and visible antics? Or has NATO actually been strengthened? I mean, he is, you know, asking them to pay more. Can you kind of explain what's going on here? So Trump isn't the first U.S. president to complain about how little European allies do to contribute to, to common defense. President Obama complained about it. All U.S. presidents have complained about it. And I think we have to go back to, to the history a little bit. NATO was established uh, also as a deterrent against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Of course, the Cold War ended in 1991, and NATO sort of lost its mission. It kind of lost its mojo. And in fact, 
military spending was declining. There's a lot of reports about NATO troops not being prepared, not having the appropriate equipment. So I think there was this kind of resting on your laurels mentality. And then what happens in 2014? Russia invades Ukraine, occupies Crimea, enters Ukraine's east. And I think this moment starts to really reinvigorate NATO, that Russia is still a threat. They're still an adversary to the east. And it's that point that we see the mission being reignited again. So this happens obviously before President Trump. But the way that Trump was expressing this longstanding American dissatisfaction with European allies is, I think, putting some fire under them because Europeans have had to realize that, you know, without U.S. support, Europe cannot defend itself against this threat to the East, and they really do need the United States. But all of these commitments, I think, were much more driven by Russian aggression than they have been by President Trump. Right. And Alex, when when Alina says, you know, that uh, they reinvigorated the mission, right, can you talk to some of the specifics in terms of, like, how NATO kind of changed and what are, like, some tangible things? If we're talking about NATO, you know, getting strong again, besides just the spending, like, what else are they doing? Uh, you've seen the U.S. commit a lot more money, I mean, billions more dollars to uh, European security. What um, does that mean? Like, sorry, yeah, what mean, does European security look like? Sure, it means troops to Eastern Europe. It means more weapons to those militaries. But it also means possibly more just U.S. involvement in thinking about European security issues. There's kind of an, an issue where you can imagine Russia being a threat from the north and east, and then you've got sort of terrorists coming in from the south. The U.S. barely paid attention to a lot of these issues during the Obama years, seems to be paying a lot more attention now in the Trump years. And so when you think about U.S. commitment to European security, we're talking about troops, money, and focus. Right. So on the ground, like substantively, even though it looks like Trump is kind of destroying this alliance, in reality, he's doing things like sending more troops to fight against or protect against Russia, right? Yeah. And I think on top of all that, what we've seen Congress do is hugely by exponential numbers, increased spending on what's now called the European Defense Initiative. This was started in the last year of Obama, I think at around $460 million, And the most recent budget is $6.3 billion. Wow. Yeah. That's a massive increase. And this is something the Trump administration is doing despite all the rhetoric. And I think what's been really bizarre and fascinating to observe is that you know, you have the president saying one thing, but his administration doing something totally different to reaffirm U.S. commitment. And the Baltic states, uh, Alex mentioned the threat from the north, have been lobbying the United States to have permanent U.S. troop presence. Remind me which one are the Baltic states. Sure. sure. Uh, I always, you know. Not yeah. the Balkans. Right. Not the Balkans. The Baltic states. And remind me how they kind of play into this. Sure. So the the Baltic states are the three states in Europe's north. They're all EU members, NATO members. That's Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia. Really kind of micro states to a certain extent. They used to be part of the Soviet Union. Right. And so this is, I think, from the Russian point of view, still very contentious territory because they were formally incorporated into the Soviet space until quite recently, until the 1990s. And so those countries are very, very nervous because of that. They share some borders of Russia. Russia has a little exclave, as it's called, called Kaliningrad, which is a tiny little island in the middle of Europe that's actually Russian territory. And so they're very, very nervous. They've been lobbying the U.S. for a very long time to have more U.S. permanent presence on the ground. And 
it actually seems like there may be some movement towards this. We're not there yet. But again, this this seems to go against what President Trump has been uh, rallying about. Yeah. I mean, just just to put a point on that as well. I mean, you've got more troops in those Baltic states, more U.S. troops in those Baltic states. You've got more U.S. troops in Poland. Maybe possibly Poland wants a permanent U.S. base there. It's unclear if we want that. You've got more U.S. troops in Romania, et cetera, et cetera. So now you've got a quite a buildup, actually, of U.S. troops in former Soviet territory near Russia's border. So it's it's quite striking. Okay, so we have this, you know, really prominent buildup of U.S. troops right against Russia's border defending these NATO allies, right, these vulnerable states against Russia. So the entire kind of perception that we have of like, uh-oh, you know, Trump is disrupting this alliance, when you really look at like the nitty-gritty, his rhetoric doesn't seem to match what his administration is actually doing. But there's another kind of wrinkle to this, right? So yes, maybe this kind of fear is is superficial in some ways, but European leaders are also really concerned because it's not just the NATO summit. Trump is now, in a couple days, heading to Helsinki to sit down for a one-on-one meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And, And after the break, what to expect from that meeting. Dun, dun, dun. You know how when you text someone and you're really excited and you add like 16 exclamation points? Imagine that there are 16 exclamation points after this next sentence. I am very excited about the latest episode of Vox's Netflix show, Explained. Every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one topic. And this week's episode is all about the exclamation point. It breaks down the history of the exclamation point. Also, how and why exclamation points can be confusing. And it also looks at other ways we could end sentences, like the interrobang. So go check it out on Netflix, exclamation point, exclamation point. Or go straight to netflix.com slash explained. And while you're there, if you want to get notified about new episodes automatically, just add explained to your list. That's netflix.com slash explained. We here at Worldly are part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, which has a bunch of really great shows. For example, The Arthur Brooks Show, our newest podcast. It explores the art of disagreement. He doesn't think that we disagree too much, but that we've forgotten how to disagree well. The first episode is all about disagreements with families and friends. Check it out. That's The Arthur Brooks Show, and you can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. For elsewhere, we are going to Helsinki, and that is where Trump is going to meet Vladimir Putin. So, you know, here in the U.S., obviously, this meeting is being seen in the context of the special counsel investigation and collusion and Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election and fears of whether they're going to continue to do that in the upcoming midterm elections. But there are also international concerns related to NATO, related to international security. Alex, just walk us through kind of what are NATO allies so freaked out about with this upcoming meeting? What what do they think is going to happen? The substance that was just agreed to at the NATO summit could go completely by the wayside if Trump starts to side more with Putin than with European allies, and that could be in a couple of ways. One, he recognizes Crimea as Russian territory. Trump has already said that they speak Russian there, so maybe they should be Russian anyway. Great. Terrific. Yep. Two, he could lift sanctions that the Obama administration put on Russia over the Ukraine invasion. He could basically say, I don't want to have any more military exercises with NATO countries because that costs too much money. Trump already stopped those exercises with South Korea in one instance because of the North Korea deal. He could also make some sort of deal over Syria where he says, hey, Putin, can you take control over Syria and solve that situation for me so I can get my troops out? And Putin could 
conceivably go, yeah, sure, no problem. We pull our troops out and then Putin just kind of lets things go as they are. So all of those things are completely possible and would undo a lot of sort of the goodwill that the U.S. has built up in Europe until now. So we mentioned the Baltic states. And just today, right, Trump didn't rule out literally stopping military exercises in the Baltic states if Putin asked him to. A reporter asked him, you know, would you cancel them? And he said, perhaps we'll talk about that. So this kind of fear that he's going to just give something away, whether, you know, it's directly related to NATO and the Baltic states, military exercises, things like that, um, is real because he's not giving these definitive answers like, no, I would absolutely not do this. You know, we are at the, the core of NATO. We want to stop Russian aggression, right? He's really wishy-washy. Maybe that's part of his negotiating style. Either way, NATO allies are super freaked out. But I want to get back to the Syria issue. You mentioned that Putin and Trump could potentially make a deal on Syria. Um, Elena, do you want to talk us through kind of what's going on there and, and what the kind of fear is there? Well, I think on Syria, we've seen a lot of reports that American allies in the Middle East, including the Saudis, including the Emirates, and including Israel, have been sort of trying to lobby Trump to make a deal with Putin to curb Iranian power in, in Syria, specifically more broadly in the region. Of course, this administration sees Iran as sort of the, the axis of evil. This is something that would be very appealing to Trump, potentially. But what would Trump then give Putin? And what's been reported is that uh, the idea is that Trump would give Putin Ukraine. So Ukraine would be the sort of the sacrificial lamb, and this would be kind of the embodiment of the grand bargain between Trump and Putin that many people feared about when Trump was first elected. Right. So just kind of a, a reminder for people, because it, it gets really confusing in Syria. Iran has troops directly and is also supporting proxy groups like Hezbollah in Syria on the side of, of Bashar al-Assad. Russia is also a huge backer of Assad. Now, Trump has said on the campaign trail and after, he doesn't want U.S. troops in Syria. He wants to get out. Let Russia fight ISIS if they want to fight them. Let them fight them in Syria. That was Trump uh, in a CNN interview from the campaign back in 2015. The idea there is he wants U.S. troops out. Putin would also like that. I'm sure President Assad would like that. But the other side is that the Pentagon and most of Trump's top advisors have said, no, we really need to keep a U.S. presence in Syria. Why is that? What's going on there? Yeah, so part of it is this we have about give or take 2,000 advisors in Syria. They military are, advisors, Sorry, yeah, right. military okay, advisors. Cool. I mean, they, they help what's called as like the Free Syrian Army. It's also just kind of this ragtag group of folks that just want to fight against Assad because they don't like him. And we're there mostly for ISIS though, right? Yes, well, that's the issue here is that the strategy is that we're advising those anti-Assad forces, but we're really there to kill ISIS. The problem is that most of ISIS is already killed in Syria and most of our troops are now in the northeastern part where ISIS is sort of left. So why does Trump want to get out and why do the military advisors want to stay in? Military advisors want to stay in because once ISIS goes, what's left, right? You, you need to kind of rebuild and reconstruct or at least create a stable space so that there are some places to govern again. and that So people, they don't come back. So they don't come back. <laughs> right, uh, right. And, but Trump thinks that's just too much money. It's, it's a problem with Russia because, again, we're sort of we're in, in confrontation with them there. So the fact of us leaving would do two things in Trump's mind. One, save the U.S. money and make things better with Russia. But I cannot overstate enough how shitty a deal it would be for Trump to make the deal that Alina described, which is Ukraine for Syria. If we do the Ukraine deal and you give Ukraine to Russia, you've effectively abandoned your European allies that have asked you to do more against it. You've emboldened Russia even further in Europe. And in terms of Syria, 
Russia's not going to do shit. They're only going to help Iran get into more areas. They're only going to bombard more civilians. They're only going to help Assad stay in power. There is really no upside to that deal that I see from here. Maybe they've got some sort of other deal they're thinking of, but from what Alina just described, that would be an absolute disaster for the United States. We don't have to look too far to understand why Russia is such an untrustworthy partner in Syria. During the Obama administration, I lost count of how many times Secretary Kerry tried to get a deal on Syria with the Russians. He traveled and met Lavrov countless times. It became quite embarrassing at a certain point. Uh, it seemed like he was being naive or ignorant. I'm not sure. But at the end of the day, the Russians just washed their hands of it and just did what they were going to do anyways, which is support Iran and support Assad. And that's still what they're going to do. They have no reason to break up their current alliance with Iran. It's serving them well. It's establishing them as a big power player in the region. And they're not going to give that up. Right. And to go back to the Ukraine issue, right, you know, Russia seized Crimea. Russia, you know, invaded Ukraine. Ukraine isn't a NATO ally. But the fact that Russia basically just openly did this to another country and just completely said, screw you, international system. I'm going to do whatever I want, and I'm going to go invade countries. Kind of really speaks to the drama that we saw at the NATO summit and why NATO leaders are so terrified now. So despite the fact that, you know, yes, NATO looks stronger kind of in practice on the ground, yes, Trump finally agreed at the end of this two-day summit to sign this joint communique to recommit to NATO, said nice things about NATO, and yes, this is a grand military alliance and we support it. They're seriously worried that he could literally, a couple days later, go sit down with Putin and be like, yeah, Ukraine's yours, that's fine. And the fear is that, like, okay, well, yeah, we're building up all this military forces to, to you know, confront Russia and to make it clear to Russia that they can't do this to NATO countries, right? You can't do this to us. We will stand up. We are going to put our military in the border. But if Trump just goes over there and goes, I mean, it's fine. You can just have Ukraine. That's fine. Like, that sends a really, really powerful message to Putin and to NATO allies. That's a really scary picture you just painted, Jen. But I think we have to keep in mind that Trump doesn't have full unilateral authority to make these kinds of decisions. Right. There's still the U.S. Congress, and the U.S. Congress just released this non-binding uh, letter reaffirming U.S. commitment to NATO because there's concerns that Trump wouldn't do that. Obviously, there is agreement among his cabinet members. So I think what we're going to have to watch is how much of this is rhetoric and how much of it actually gets implemented, and try to stay calm. And that is a great place to end with that little ray of hope. I'm not calm. <laughs> Alex is panicking. Alina is calm. Still not still not happy. I'm kind of in the middle. Um, but thank you for spending time with us today. Um, I want to thank you, Alex, for, and welcome to officially being a co-host of Worldly. Pleasure. Alina, thanks so much for spending your time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. And I want to also thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, our social media manager, Julie Bogan. Uh, Worldly has actually been nominated for this year's People's Choice Podcast Awards. So woo, if you love us, you can vote for our show for free by going to podcastawards.com or by clicking the link in the show notes. Voting ends on Tuesday, July 31st. So please don't wait. Go to podcastawards.com right now to cast your vote for Worldly. And we'll see you next week. 